welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Gateway. May I add my welcome to that of Joe's. So good to have you with us today. I am... Never known for cowardice, but I don't think I'm brave enough to mention the cricket. Don did say an apology would help, but perhaps we should move on quickly. I do want to pass on some wisdom, not the sermon, but um, today is our 35th wedding anniversary. And I came across some wisdom that I want to share with you gentlemen. It says, marriage is a relationship in which one is always right and the other is the husband. And the other one, gentlemen, is to keep your marriage full of love. Whenever you are wrong, admit it. Whenever you are right, shut up. That just means that I'm more scared of you than I am of my wife. (laughs) Uh, Last week we began a series in which we took the opportunity to look at Jesus through the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and see why they are so important, why they are so crucial to our understanding of Jesus and therefore our Christian walk. We see Jesus in the Gospels like nowhere else. So today, we come to Mark, and so we're gonna do three things very briefly. We're gonna look at the importance of this gospel, we're gonna see who the author is, and then we're gonna see the message that Mark communicates to us. Some scholars say that Mark was not only the most important book in the Bible, but is the most important book ever written. This is because in it, many people believe we have the very first account of the life of Jesus. We have the largest and earliest account of Jesus the Messiah here in Mark. Scholars believe that Mark came first and then Matthew and Luke based their books on his, that his was their template as it were. Although the four accounts found in the Gospels are all different, when we touched upon this last week, they have striking similarities. Consider the feeding of the 5,000, which is in Mark, Matthew, and Luke. And all the three stories and all the different narratives are the same. The same is true of of the account of the man who is paralyzed. It is in the three Gospels. And the similarities lead us to one of two conclusions. First of all, that all those first three Gospels were written on another source, that there is a source outside of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke especially, and that they use this source and we have no idea what it is. Or the second conclusion, and one I believe that most people believe, is that Matthew and Luke based their Gospel on Mark, therefore making Mark crucial and the earliest of all the uh, Gospels. When you divide Mark up into different sections, you will find that there are 105 different sections, and of these 105, 93 occur in Matthew and 81 occur in Luke. And of these 105 sections, only four do not appear 
in the other Gospels, which gives amazing similarity, but then again that Mark is the source. For any of those any of us here today who struggle with the veracity and the accuracy of the New Testament, it is worth noting that far, there is far more evidence, there, is far, there are far more remnants of, of writings that prove the existence of the Gospels than prove the existence of Julius Caesar. There are over 5,000 remnants, 5,000 historical references that point to the Gospels being truth truthful, therefore far, far more proof that they existed than Julius Caesar ever existed. And we all believe that Julius Caesar existed because history tells us there is more proof for the Gospels and for Jesus than for Caesar. Over 5,000 different historical references. And you know, Sometimes we can just think that, oh, that's just Jesus, that's the Gospels, those are the things that we have been raised with. They have an existence in time and history and a living context that make it so real for us as Christians today to believe. There is far more evidence for the Bible and for the Gospels than any other narrative of that time in history. So confident are we in the Gospels. Mark has 661 verses, Matthew has 1,068, and Luke has a whole lot more. Of Mark's 661 verses, Matthew himself references 606 of these with only slightly altered wording. 51% of what Mark says is directly quoted by Matthew. There is a lot of shared material. And we state all this, and there's far more statistics, far more stuff that we could look at, that prove that Mark is crucial to the foundation of the four Gospels. That he was the one that gave, the, as it were, birth to the others. He was the template for the others. So the question needs to be asked, why was this and who was John Mark, as he is often referred to? In truth, the Bible tells us, or the New Testament tells us a lot about John Mark, he was the son of Mary, who was a relatively wealthy lady from Jerusalem, whose house was used by the early church. She is referenced in Acts chapter 12. It seems that from the outset, this guy Mark was at the center of the life of the early church. He was either a nephew or a cousin of Barnabas, who we read a lot about in the Acts of the Apostles. Barnabas is mentioned time and time again, and he is his relative. John Mark went with Paul on his first journey to preach the gospel in Asia Minor in modern-day Turkey. We read in Acts chapter 12. But as most of us will know, this didn't go very well, and when they reached Perga in Turkey, they split up. Paul wanted to go one way, Mark wanted to go the other, and we don't really know why they split up, why they argued, but we just know that they did. One early church father writes that young John Mark was homesick for his mum. That's what the early church fathers tells us. Acts 13, 13 tells us that he went home and Paul became angry as a result of this decision. And I love the way the message says it like this. It says from Papos, Paul and the company put out the sea, sailing onto Perga in Pamphylia. That's where John called it quits and went back to Jerusalem. So this is John Mark. But later, when Barnabas wants to take Mark on a journey that they are taking with Paul, Paul says no, and 
they fall out quite badly, and they go their separate ways. So we know quite a bit about the author of this book. Mark reappears at the end of the book of Colossians when Paul wrote from jail in Rome to the church of Colossae. And in this letter, Paul mentions Mark very, very favorably. He also appears in Paul's letter to Philemon. And then just before Peter is about to die, he writes to Timothy in Ephesus and says, can you send Mark to me? Can you send Mark to me? Something has happened, something has changed that this young man who has been criticized, whose participation has caused problems, is now seen by Paul as a worthy member of the cause and a fellow brother. So knowing who who he is and a little bit about the book, where does he get this information from to write this gospel? Well, according to the early church writings and tradition, he used to be a disciple of Peter the Apostle. And when Peter used to preach, he used to write his sermons down. He listened and he wrote them down. And it is accurate to say that in Mark's gospel are the messages and the recollections of Peter the Apostle. Peter's personal reflections of Jesus, his first-hand account of the Master, of the Messiah, are here in this book. This young man listened to Peter, told us, telling the stories of Jesus, of how he moved, how he lived, and how he talked, and he wrote it down for us today. One early church father says this, Mark, who was Peter's interpreter, wrote down accurately, though not in order, all that he could recollect all that Christ had said or done. For he was not a hearer of the Lord or the follower of his, but was of Peter at a later date. So John Mark didn't know Jesus in that sense, we believe, but he was a disciple or a follower of Peter. Another early church father writing about Peter and his working relationship with Mark says this, Peter adapted his instructions to practical needs without any attempt to give the Lord's work any systematic order. So Mark's one concern was to listen and to write down and to leave us with something that was true and accurate. So having done a little bit of the background, having a little bit of the history to who John Mark is, have a little bit of history to where this has come from, I want us to find out what is the center, if I can use the word, what are the guts of this book that we need to take away from us? We looked at Matthew last week and what Matthew sets out to do to a Jewish audience, but what is Mark all about? And the first truth, the first reality that I believe Mark wants us to see is that Jesus takes your breath away. That Jesus, that he hears all about from Peter, takes our breath away. And we're going to read Mark 8 and beginning of chapter 9. And for those picking up the series today, this is the same account that we read last week in Matthew's gospel, and we're going to start there again, right in the middle of this book. As we do in Matthew, we have this fundamental question being asked by Jesus, whom do men say that I am? And we're going to read this through. We're going to read it through into chapter 9 because, as we know, there was no chapter breaks in those days, and so we're going to just continue through to get the whole passage. So bear with me. It'll be on the screen, but it's important that we get this because I want to come back to it later as we conclude. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, 
John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus alone. I mentioned earlier that the Jesus of John Mark, as he writes, he never forgets to tell us about Jesus in every sense of who he was. Throughout the book of Mark, we see Jesus as a man walking in Judea and Galilee, but even in such setting, Mark uses the opportunity time and time again to tell us that the people who listened to him and watched him were astonished by him. They were amazed by him. They were left speechless by him. That they stood in awe as he drives out an evil spirit, as he calms the storm, as they hear him teach. And Mark 10 says these words and declares they are amazed at his words. One gets the feeling that Mark can never really get over who Jesus is. He cannot really understand the majesty and the awesomeness of who this man is. And he wants his readers and listeners to understand that here is a man who is inexplicable. To Mark, Jesus was not someone who could simply be studied or worked out naturally. There was something more going on with him. For me, I'm gonna be very honest, for me, one of the challenges that I have as a believer of many years standing is that I run the risk of becoming familiar with the Bible, that I, be, I run the risk of becoming familiar with the Word of God, 
that familiarity will never ever breed contempt, but at least if I am not careful, it will breed a sense of accustomedness, if there is such a word. An accustomedness in all that I do can, with God may creep in. One reads the stories of feeding the five thousands, the healings, the raising of the dead, the, the walking on the water, all as it happens, as if it happens all the time. Perhaps it's a, a funny thing to say, and if we're not careful, our unchecked emotions, our unchecked response is just to say, oh, that's Jesus. Oh, that's just who he is. But Mark says that they were amazed. So frequently we would do well to guard against losing our astonishment and our wonder with who Jesus is and what he is all about. As I was preparing for today, I asked myself the question, when did Jesus last take my breath away? When did I last get lost in the awesomeness of who he is and what he has done for me and what he is doing for us as a group of people? When was the last time I stopped myself from being so considered, so rational, so logical, if I can say it so proper, I really don't know how to say it, but allowed him to take my breath away. Or is he, or is worship, or is all that we did this morning, or is praise or communion so familiar to us? I don't know for myself, but I believe it's a good question to ask. Surely, it must be the more we think and the more we know about Jesus, the truth is the less we actually do know anything about him because he is so beyond us that he is so incredible. The longer we walk with him, surely the more enraptured and in love we ought to be with him. The idea of this Jesus, this wonderful Jesus who takes the breath away that Mark wants to communicate to us, that he loves us, that he loves his church, he loves this city, he loves this nation, should surely at least take our breath away. That there is an astonishment in this gospel that comes through like no other gospel that we need to be careful we, we don't lose in our own lives. Secondly, Mark also gives us this wonderful picture of the divinity and the humanity of Jesus as it were wrapped up in one. Mark 1, 1 says, has no genealogy as there is in Matthew, it's straight in. It's like Mark says, the good news of Jesus Christ, the message begins here. Straight in with the good news. No long introductions telling us who his parents were, who his grandparents were, who his great-great-grandfather was. He gets straight into what he sees the most incredible story of the good news of Jesus Christ. Here, as it were, is his declaration that the Son of God has come and we need to listen to it. Mark wants us to understand that Jesus is not some crackpot claiming to be the Messiah or some second or third-rate prophet, but here is someone who is different who to anything or anyone that has ever gone before who will ever come in the future, and he sets that out from Mark 1.1. But it not only gives us in his book a picture of who Jesus is as God, 
but who Jesus is as man. He writes things that Matthew and Luke don't understand. We can hear the, the, storyteller of, the storytelling of Peter coming across to us. You see, he tells us some things that the other gospels don't tell us. He describes Jesus as the carpenter in chapter six, where Matthew says he's the son of a carpenter. He makes Jesus plain an uncomplicated and a hard worker. In Mark's gospel, the spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness. But in Matthew and Luke, they say that the spirit led him into the wilderness. In Mark only do we read that Jesus sighs deeply as he is moved in compassion. Again, in this gospel only, he is moved in righteous anger. He is moved by their unbelief. And he has loving compassion for the rich young ruler. Only in Mark do we read that he is hungry and so exhausted that Jesus had to rest. You can see him listening again to Peter. Mark does not sacrifice Jesus' divinity to, to believe in his humanity. And he doesn't have us lose his humanity while addressing his divinity. For Mark, they go wonderfully well together in not some great theological exposition or thesis, but for Mark, in, Jesus, for in Mark's gospel, Jesus is both human and divine, and we see it so wonderfully in those little things that he says and those things that he teaches us. And building upon this, Mark captures some small things about Jesus that other writers don't, but in different ways. When Matthew and Luke refer to Jesus bringing children to himself, they simply say, he welcomed them. Mark says, he scooped them up in his arms. Completely different. Well, it's not completely different, but he welcomes them. That's really good. That could be really formal. But here, he scoops them up. This man is loved by kids, he's safe with kids, he made them and he knows their importance, he welcomed them. A wonderful picture of Jesus who is gentle and compassion. When Jesus feeds the 5,000, it is only Mark who mentions that Jesus has them sit down in groups of 50 and 100. That sense of being together, that sense of corporate. When Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem for the last time in this gospel, Mark alone says that Jesus went ahead of them with his eyes fixed on Jerusalem. In the storm on the lake, where Jesus calms the wind, Mark alone says that Jesus was asleep and his head was on a pillow. Little, wonderful little pictures in the gospel of how Jesus lived that don't exist anywhere. Other things that only Mark tells us. He tells us that Simon and Andrew were casting nets and James and John were mending them. The lady that, that bled, that had an issue of, of bleeding, she, Mark tells us that she had it for 12 years. Nobody else references it. He tells us the little things about Jesus. He gives us the very impression and picture of a Jesus who Hebrews 4 tells us was touched by our infirmities. Mark captures this for, the, for us today. If you are ever finding it hard to relate to Jesus, then read Mark's Gospel. If you, if you think Jesus is perhaps aloof and detached, then read Mark's gospel. If you're finding it hard to see that Jesus is Lord and King, then read Matthew's gospel. But Mark reminds us that Jesus is gentle, is approachable, is genuine, and yet is both human and divine. Another thing that Mark does is to give us the real sense of urgency. 
He uses sentences in a particular way. When you get home over the next couple of days, read Mark 3, for in that chapter, in the English version of it, and it may be slightly different in whatever translation you, you read, there are 34 times in my Bible, in Mark chapter 3, that he uses the word and. I've just quoted two, two verses here, two to four. It says, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal them on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or harm? And he said to save life or to kill, but they were silent. One of the many things that I loved as a dad when my children were growing up, and to be honest, they're not here so I can say this, they still sometimes do this today, is that when they come home, and when they haven't seen you for a few hours or something, and they come home and they've got something to tell you that they want to get out, I don't know if it's like, your kids are like this, but they come in through the door and they see you, Dad, I want to tell you this, and this happened, and that happened, and the next thing happened, and then we went on to this, and it's like, and you say, kids, slow down, take a breath. They take a deep breath and they go, and this happened and the next thing happened and I heard so and so. Those of you who are parents, you totally understand what I mean. And you just really haven't heard a word what they say, but you've just seen them go red. And you just say, breathe. In Jesus' name, breathe. We don't want, but you know, I get the impression that this is what Mark is trying to do here for us. Perhaps doing it better. It's like, he's, he who wrote the second gospel says, it's like, I have so much to tell you, I have so much to tell you. This happened, Jesus did that, he went there, he confronted that person, that happened, he set them free, and this, and this, and this, and the next thing. He just wants to get it all off his chest and he wants to write it down, he's not worried about theology, he's not worried about how wonderfully um, theological Matthew's gospel is. He wants to tell you how wonderful Jesus and our Savior is. He wants to get it out and he wants to write it down so that you and I, along with billions throughout the ages, will hear how wonderful this Jesus is. You see, Mark uses the word immediately or straight away or forthwith, it's a good word, isn't it? 58 times in 16 chapters. Mark is trying to communicate to the reader an urgency about Jesus about who he is and the role that he wants to play in people's lives. Next, just briefly this next point, one of the things we note that in that same enthusiastic way, in that same way of listening to Peter, Mark talks about things in the present tense. He finds himself so caught up in the story or retelling the story that much of what he constructs sentence-wise is in the present, in the here and now. It's not something that comes across very well in an English version of the Bible. But if we compare Mark chapter two, verse 17, with an English translation and the Greek, the original Greek says this, when Jesus hears what he says to them, those who are well have no need of a physician. In modern day translations, on hearing this, Jesus said. It is not the healthy who need a doctor. This happens in time and time again. He wants the readers of the first century to get a sense of an unfolding story that is beyond belief, an unfolding story that Jesus is in the midst of them and he has left the Holy Spirit for them. This unfolding story that is not finished. And when we come to the end, we will touch upon the end of Mark 16 in a more profound way. 
You see, Mark's Jesus, moving on, is also a servant in chapter 10, having been confronted by people who wanted to be great, i.e. James and John, Jesus responds with these most powerful of words, but it, shall, but it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever must be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is probably the biggest hint as to what the greatest story in this whole book is and what Mark wants the listeners and the readers to understand. That Jesus sets his face like a flint in the gospel towards one place alone, and of course that is Calvary. In the first half of this gospel, Jesus crisscrosses the Jordan. He's all over Galilee, if I can put it like this without being disrespectful. He's here, there, and everywhere. But then something happens in chapter 8 which changes the trajectory of what he is about. But something has happened, and it is in this passage that we read in both Matthew and here that says, whom do people say that I am? It's significant that what Jesus talked about being a servant came after chapter eight. We'll come to that now. But it's here things changed. And we see here, as I said, in both these gospels that when when Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus says something really strange. He says, don't tell anyone. The reason is this. Now that it has been said that you are the Christ, Now that it has been said, now that it has become aware, now that it is known amongst his closest followers that he is the Christ and they know what has happened, it is as if his his fate has been sealed. From this moment on, he knows that he is going to die. He knows that people have recognized that he is the Messiah, that he is the promised one, that he is the Christ. Jesus knows in his heart that he is going to the cross to die. He is heading to the cross, and that now must become the focus of his attention. And why does Mark want to make such a big thing? Well, it comes back to that fact that he takes our breath away. It's about that fact that he wants to communicate the awesomeness of Jesus. He wants to communicate it for this very reason, because when Jesus decided, and when he went and died on the cross, he died for you and me. He endured the pain of the world and was separated on the cross from his father. He did it for you and for me, and this is the story of all stories that Mark must tell. He's heard wonderful stories from Peter, but this is ultimately the most wonderful, that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, and he came to die, to take the punishment that we deserve, the wrongdoing, the selfishness, and the shame of our lives, and has died for us. The reason that I read quite a long passage is this. At the heart of Hebrew literature, writing a book is different to writing something in English. If you wish to discover what the most important thing that the author wishes to communicate to you in Hebrew Hebrew literature is you need to go to the very center to find out what they are about. It is, if you're writing a book in English or to the uh, Western world, or if you enjoy reading a good novel, you'll know that the introduction needs to be strong. 
you will know that the conclusion needs to be really strong. The literary styles and designs of Hebrew and English writings are completely, completely different. With a Hebrew work, it's not the beginning that's so important, it's not the end, it's the centerpiece that is literally the centerpiece. When Crystal Kurgis was here with us in April, and she was so good, she spoke about, from an English perspective, the importance of an opening line or title when writing to a Western audience. And she threw up some questions, and she threw up some famous opening lines. She says, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And those of you who knew your literature would have been able to say it was Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities. Probably one of my favorite books. Last night I dreamt I was in Mandalay again, Daphne de Maurier's Rebecca, and the great Call Me Ishmael from Moby Dick. I want to revisit this, not simply to say how good she was, and not simply to test our knowledge of literature, but to highlight that what we have done is so modern, it is so cultural to us, and it is so Western. To understand what a Hebrew writer wants as the most important aspect of the book, as I said earlier, we need to look at the center and not the beginning and not the end. This is simply the style, the form that they used to grasp. And we need to know what is at the center of these Hebrew books. The style they used was to grab our attention. The middle of Mark's gospel, therefore, that we read together, is the central issue of what he wants to communicate. The central issue that he wants to communicate. It is this, and everything changes from here on in. It's this, if, you wanna, if we want to follow Jesus, then we have a cross to carry, and, we carry a cro- and if we carry a cross, we will see his glory. The transfiguration and the cross carrying denial at the center of Mark's gospel sit together in the middle because this is the message. The whole book is divided into two. The first half is about Jesus, then we have this crux, this central piece, and then the second part is all about what it means to be a disciple. Yes, it has the crucifixion, but it's all about what it means to be a disciple. The message of Mark, therefore, is if you want to follow Jesus, then take up your cross and follow him. But it isn't going to be easy. We just read it systematically and just think that those things happen. That's not how you understand the Gospels. We've got to come back to the center. The laid-back, casual Western Christianity of the 21st century has nothing to do with Mark's Gospel. When he says, if you want to follow him, you have to follow him, and if you want to follow him, you have to carry a cross. There is no other way. It is interesting that the the power and hope that is contained within Mark is very, very powerful and very loudly articulated. He says in Mark 8, again the center, what good will all the wealth do you if you don't have the peace of God? What good will all the stuff of life you've accumulated do you if you don't have peace with God and pursue his purposes for your life? The question begs to be asked, do we have peace or have we made the gospel simply appear like a a lifestyle choice, choice, not like there is a cross to carry? The message of Mark is pick up your cross and follow me. There is a cost, Mark tells us, to following Jesus, that to lay down the things that perhaps we don't need, 
so that we can have the things that perhaps we cannot live without. So after chapter eight and from then on, the importance of Jesus going to the cross and what we are called to be as a disciples becomes the relevant piece. And you know, it's after the center of the book, after the central message, that Jesus says three times to his disciples, doesn't mention it before, they're all after, take up your cross and follow me because he is going to Jerusalem to die. And each time Mark references that Jesus tells his disciples he is going to die, each time they just don't get it. I think we have to ask ourselves the same question. Does the gospel of the 21st century that we communicate, that we teach, tell people that there is a cross that needs to be picked up and there is a person to follow. The decision to follow Jesus is not to be taken lightly. The gospel of Jesus is about taking up our cross and following a master who demands our life and our all. Some of the things that Jesus did not promise us was a a long life in which we would be entitled to a certain way of life and our expectations would always be fulfilled. He did not promise that the world would owe us something and that there would be very little discouragement or very little dismay. Nor did he promise us that that our family and our friends would not go through difficult times and that everything would be easy. What he has promised us is that he will never leave us and he will never forsake us and he will always give us his strength. And this is quite different, and the invitation at the center of Mark's gospel is not the invitation to everything will not go wrong in the world, but instead to remember that when it does go wrong, that God is with us, that the Lord is our shepherd, and that goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life. Mark is a gospel that makes religious people unhappy and gives those who have taken up their cross to follow him peace and hope. Musicians, please. See, Mark is a gospel writer who wants us to understand the urgency of who Jesus is. But then we come to the end of the book, and it happens in a very abrupt and quite unique way. You probably have read the end of Mark, Mark chapter 16, and it's in some, I don't know how it says it in yours, but it says that Verses 19 to 20, they say they weren't sure that these were originally included in the text, but may have been added at a later date. Have you seen that? You've come across that. And it's in every little, it's in every New Testament, it's in every book. They're not sure what it's about. And you know, in some ways, that's not relevant for us now as we wrap up this morning, because I want to go back to the beginning of Mark's gospel, where he says, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and However it ends, whether verses 9 to 20 were included or weren't included, however it ends, the message of this book may have ended, but the story has not. Why? Because we are now the carriers of this story, irrespective of where it ended in verse 9 or verse 20. We are now the followers of this Christ who we call Jesus, and we are now the carriers of this story and of the good news of Jesus Christ. The question that the book of Mark asks asks us is are we willing to follow where he leads? This is the main subtext of this gospel. Are we willing to let this God, who is urgent, vital, living, real, and exciting, be vital, living, urgent, and real in our lives? 
Are we willing to acknowledge that there is a cost to be counted and having counted the cost, we will follow him? And realizing that everything about following him is worth it because nothing will give us the peace that we find through Jesus nor the assurance that we will find in the living Christ. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.